Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Hey, everybody. Uh, I am animator Andrea Steja, and you are listening to Skull Rock Podcast. Hallo, ich bin Animator, Trick und Zeichner Andrea Steja, und ihr seid gerade beim Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney. With your hosts, Eljan Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome once again to an episode of Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture, where every week we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Eljan Go, your co-host and lifelong Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist, You can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm your other co-host. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And Al John, we got a great show. Uh, we've got animator, I mean, really incredible, top-notch animator, Nancy Beeman. Yay. And she's also an author and a professor. And I want to give a shout-out because she wrote How I There's her, there's her yeah, applause there. <laughs> how I how I finally got to live a cat's life, a cartoon diary, <laughs> 2020 to 2021 by Nancy Beeman. Love it. Uh, she sent me a copy of that. And we're gonna we're gonna make sure that we have a link to that uh, in our show notes. Uh, but we're gonna be talking to her about her career, not only as a great animator, but also as an instructor, a professor of animation at Sheridan College, where she just retired. So we're looking forward to having her on the show. And it, I gotta say, we're we're like two weeks away from Christmas and Hanukkah. It's where, crazy. Where has this year gone, Dave? It, it, it has shot by Al John. It really has. I have to tell you. And, and I have a very busy week, by the way. Oh, uh, what's going on? I mean, I know you have a book out. Well, you know something, I my 3D National Parks book uh, is out. Uh, I signed a whole bunch of copies over the last couple, I guess, like the last week. Yeah. And um, I have to tell you, this coming Saturday, December 17th, I am so excited about this. I am going to be at the Bob Baker Marionette Theater Holiday Bazaar Whoa. at the Forest Lawn Museum in Glendale. That's awesome. It's unbelievable. And Disney legend Bob Gurr is going to be there. The Angel City Press, Wild About Mary Blair. Uh, I mean, you know, the Adventure Town Toy Emporium, Dapper Day, Burke Motel. Uh, I mean, it's just a whole bunch of folks. 
And the Bob Baker Marionette Theater is going to be there. They're going to have their marionettes on display. I think they're even doing a puppet show. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. So there's free snacks. There's all kinds of stuff for kids. No RSVP needed. Just show up. It's at the Forest Lawn Museum on Glendale Avenue in Glendale, California. So I'm excited about that because I'm actually going to be able to mingle with the marionettes. Well, that's great. Plus, I mean, it's like a whole traveling show there. So you've got yeah. the marionette show, you've got the display, the all the great people and uh, you know animators and Imagineers are going to be there too. Wow, that yeah. sounds like a blast. So uh, yeah, it's it's really terrific. And then now, if that's not all, Sunday, hmm. December 18th, I'm going to be at Walt's Barn in. Whoa right next to travel town in Griffith park in Los Angeles, California. And Don Hahn is going to be there and there's going to be some other folks. We're going to be signing books. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know, the Walt's barn is only open one Sunday out of every month. Yeah. And so for December, it's the 18th and I'm looking forward to seeing people stop by, say hello. If you're in the area, uh, but that's, it's going to be a crazy busy week. And on top of it, I'm going down to Disneyland Thursday and Friday. Wow. You've got it. You've got a packed week. I know. Well, let me ask you this while you're at Walt's barn is a master sergeant gunny napper going to be there too. Absolutely. Yeah. Gunny is going to be there. He's going to do his flag ceremony. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got to tell you something. If you live in the Los Angeles area and you haven't experienced Walt's barn, you should check it out. Walt's Barn, right next to Travel Town in Griffith Park, Los Angeles. Dave, you'll have to email me all those deets. I'll put it in the show notes so you can see Dave out there in in with you, signing books, having fun with a bunch of great Disney friends and and creators alike. It's going to be a great week, and uh, that's great. And you get to experience Disneyland. Are you going to uh, go over there and see a little bit of the uh, Candlelight Processional and the other stuff I, going on there? He, you know something? I don't think so. No. Because I, I we're having dinner at the Napa Rose. Oh, okay. And, and then I'm doing a private event with my 3D Disneyland book. So I'm That's really awesome. looking forward to that. Yeah, I love it. It's gonna well, be a lot of fun. That is gonna be great. So send you know send the set information. We'll we'll make sure to put the, that public information out there so people can see you and interact with you. Pick up a signed book. Um, your National uh, Parks 3D book is already out. We've got links for that as well as Nancy Beeman's book. So a lot of stuff there to just. Uh, uh, get into this week with Dave. And of course, if you follow Dave on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, you'll get all that information as well. Yeah. And, and you know something, it, it, it's absolutely fantastic because it's the weekend before Christmas and Hanukkah. I love it. You know, Han- Hanukkah falls uh, right smack dab with Christmas this yeah. year. Yeah. Usually, uh, you know, I, I remember Hanukkah being like a, you know, a week before, two weeks before, you know. And, yeah. But this so. this year it's like concurrent. Wow. Uh, which is fantastic. So this is a chance next weekend is a chance to do all your last minute shopping or in some people's cases, all of your shopping that weekend. There you go. Get all your Hanukkah <laughs> gifts, get all your Christmas gifts going and get all your Merry Kwanzaa, Kwanaka stuff together because everything, just get all it all it. Kwanzaa, get it all. Yeah. Uh, just Co- get it cover, all. cover all the bases. Co- you might as well, right? You yeah. know, treat yourself right. You, you've deserved it. <laughs> so, uh, I tell you what, man, great stuff there. Great feedback on last week's show. And this week will be no different. I guarantee you. And right now let's talk about what's 
what's playing, what's on our playlist. I think we should just call this the uh, the Skull Rock Podcast playlist because we talk about the stuff we're streaming, what we've seen in theaters. And this week, Dave, what have you uh, been able to check out? Well, you know, Al John, uh, you know me. I always go to the movies. I try to every week if I possibly can. And uh, this week was no different. I went to see Violent Night. That's right. Violent Night, which is a a, a holiday Christmas movie uh, starring David Harbour from Stranger Things Mm -hmm. and John Luguizamo. Luguizamo, yes. Yeah, and Beverly D'Angelo from the uh, uh, National Lampoon Vacation Vacation movies, you know. So this is, uh, I'll give you the synopsis. An elite team of mercenaries breaks into a family compound on Christmas Eve, taking everyone hostage inside. However, they aren't prepared for a surprise combatant. Santa Claus is on the grounds, and he's about to show why this Nick is no saint. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I I, I did go into this movie with high expectations. Uh, It's an okay movie, you know? There's a lot of violence, a lot of mayhem. Um, it's kind of a cross between uh, Home Alone and Die Hard. How's that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Home Alone and Die Hard. So yeah. it's basically Home Alone and Die Hard. Okay. So a little little kid with a bunch of explosives. So it's a Jerry Bruckheimer film. <laughs> no, I, I wish it was because it probably would have been better. You know, I, you know we, uh, we laugh about that. We laugh about Jerry Bruckheimer now, but you know, I tell you what, I mean, Jerry Bruckheimer is responsible for Top Gun for Pete's sake. I mean, that's he, right. You know, that's so right. many great stuff. But anyway, uh, but anyway, violent, violent night. It's sort of tra la la, yippee ki yay. You know, uh, I like okay? it. Okay. I like it. Yippee ki yay. So I'll put that on my list. I'll watch it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then I, I saw. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Oh, yeah. And I got to tell you, my God, what an incredible, beautiful movie this is. Oh, yes. It's absolutely stunning. It's heartwarming. It's sad. Uh, It runs the gamut of emotions. It's true to the uh, original book. Uh, and I have to tell you, Al John, I, uh, Nancy and I both loved this movie. That's awesome. Um, it's, it's just absolutely, uh, stunning. Uh, I don't know how much more I can say about it. If you like, uh, stop motion animation, this movie feels handmade. Um, it doesn't feel like it's so perfectly done stop motion that it's, you know, computer generated looking almost like, like some of the, the recent stop motion films, this really feels like a handmade movie and it's just beautiful. Absolutely stunning film. If you get a chance, it's playing right now. It dropped on, uh, on the 9th of December on Netflix. So you can watch this on Netflix it's an absolutely beautiful film. So it's got uh, and, that Harryhausen vibe? It, it, more so, you know? Nice. I mean, beyond that. I mean, it's just so beautifully done. And I, I have to tell you, my prediction is that this this film not only is going to get nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this film wins Best Animated, uh, uh, the Best Animated Film Academy Award. 
It's that good. It's absolutely beautiful. It's the best animated film I've seen all year. Whoa. That's high praise, Dave. High praise. Well, I... I can't wait to check this out. This is this is great. So definitely. And then, on the list. Uh, and then I have to tell you, I watched another film, uh, and it's called The Automat. It's a documentary. Oh. And it's a docu- documentary about Horn and Hardit's iconic Automat, one of America's original and most popular restaurant chains in New York City and Philadelphia. And I don't know if you remember what an Automat is. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. So you'd go in and, you know, there'd be these, you know, uh, these tiny windows all across the walls uh, on the sides and back of the uh, restaurant. And you go up and you drop coins in and turn a knob and the little window would pop open and you'd pull out a sandwich or a piece of pie. Uh, They were known early on for their five cent cup of coffee. And it was like a French press coffee. Yep. Um, And so uh, this is a documentary uh about uh the automat and i thought it was really well done fascinating it's got uh mel brooks in it uh along with uh a bunch of others you know uh elliot gould uh ruth bader ginsburg uh they're all reminiscing and talking about uh going to the automat when they were growing up uh in the new york area yeah, so, that, it's that that's an amazing piece there because uh, I remember that as well. And uh, there was a bunch of automats, you know, especially in in um, cafeterias and stuff that didn't have fully manned, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people there. You know, yeah. they just make the food and just pop it in there, and you just go in like a vending machine. It's cool. Yeah, I, I mean, there was more than a dozen of them around Manhattan uh, and in Philadelphia, and they're all gone. Uh, but you can watch this documentary if you like history, like I do. Uh, this is just a fascinating uh, snippet uh, of a, a bygone America. Uh, you can watch this on Amazon Prime, okay? Love it. Uh, and then, of course, I caught up on Tulsa King on Paramount Plus. Yes. Um, we binged watched the uh sinner season four with bill pullman yeah uh and this is really i i gotta tell you there's a bit of inconsistency because the first season of the sinner was excellent the second and third season were like eh, okay but the fourth season is absolutely fantastic and I'll just give you a quick synopsis. Detective Harry Ambrose, who's Bill Pullman's character, investigates a chilling new homicide each season. He employs some unusual tactics and a deep capacity for empathy to solve his cases. His boundless dedication is driven by his dark past, leading him into powerful and often dangerous intimate bonds with his suspects. Uh, The Sinner is a blend of thrilling murder investigation and raw character drama, creating an electrifying ride with standout performances. Mm. So uh, I I can't say uh, uh, enough good about this uh, season four. It's absolutely fantastic. I enjoyed it. It's shot uh, in Nova Scotia, doubling for Maine. Uh, So it's the beautiful part of the country that I love. Uh, so check out, uh, the sinner, which is on Netflix. And then I also, uh, watched a couple more episodes of rogue heroes on epic or epic, whichever you want to call it. I'm waiting for them to change it to MGM plus 
which yeah. is apparently what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, Rogue Heroes is actually a really well done. It's a period series, World War Two. It, it it's basically you know it's one of these based on uh, a true story where most of the stuff in the show is true, kind right. of thing. Right. You know, it's dramatized, but it's the beginnings of the SAS which eventually evolves into, you know, the CIA and MI6 and all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So uh, there you have it. Uh, That is what I've been watching. Uh, I hope uh, some of those things will entice you to check them out. Definitely bookmarked uh, a few of those things. But uh, for me, um, we're just trying to uh, finish Wednesday. (laughs) excellent excellent (laughs) and um we also saw the disney parks uh christmas special which was pretty good as always Uh they are really promoting the heck out of avatar that we'll probably talk about um within the next uh, week because you're going to be watching it you know just trying to get uh ready for for christmas i've been exhausted because the kids are wearing me out and they just started school. I, I was going to say you got you got your hands full. With we two got we got ones. we got our hands full. But uh, I tell you what, what have you been uh, checking out? Feel free to email us. We'd love to uh, check it out if uh, if we can, and and give our thoughts on uh, your suggestions for sure. So in the meantime, uh, I'm losing my mind, Dave. I'm losing my mind. Here's where we are. I'm supposed to hit this. Yes. Skull Rock Podcast. <laughs> this week in Disney and pop culture. Oh, man. You know, I feel discombobulated, kind of like uh, DC fans are right now. They're kind of shaking their heads like they, they got, you know, they got uh, butted up against the wall and, and fell backwards uh, because James Gunn decided to cancel everything. <laughs> James hey, Gunn. you know something? I, I, I listen. I, I have to say, I respect that. Um, you know, he's coming in and he's going to straighten out the DC universe. He's going to put together some kind of a plan, and let's hope James Gunn is the Kevin Feige of, uh, you know, the DC universe. Let's yeah. hope that he comes up with the five and ten year movie plan. Uh, where the whole DC universe ties together. Yeah, this week James Gunn and Peter Safran decided to go ahead and clean house, if you will. So, brought Patty Jenkins in. Said Patty, Wonder Woman three, not working out. And uh, you know, I think they they had mentioned or met with Patty several times, and it looks like the script was just not going to fit. So they went ahead and, and walked away, cut ties, I guess. You know, um, and Patty Jenkins had left Star Wars. Uh, to finish up Wonder Woman three, and it just just wasn't working. I, I and I don't know about you, Dave. But did you see Wonder Woman eighty four? Did you see it? No, I did not. Yeah, you see, there you go. Um, so that's happening. And to boot, they're looking at uh, redoing the whole universe. They've got a couple more films to come out. You know, uh, you saw Black Adam. You were unimpressed by it, and a lot of people have that very same sentiment um, in regards to Black Adam. But uh, James Gunn had recently tweeted a picture of the Richard Donner Superman, which came out December 10th, 1978, Dave. We're on the heels of the anniversary of that film and 44 years. And to me, that film really, like Star Wars, kind of launched a whole new world for me as a kid. I love that movie and I still love to watch that movie. It's so good. And I I feel like maybe they're going to go back and make Superman a priority and continue to kind of rebuild 
the DC universe from the ground up. So we'll see how yeah. that works out. Now, I hope I hope it works out. I hope he does, you know, what he's uh, charged with doing, you know, and that is bringing some consistency to the DC universe because they have a great cast of characters. And, and by the way, I will say this most recent Batman movie with with uh, was it James Patton? Yeah, James Pattinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Pattinson. Uh, that was a good movie. It was good. It was. It was very good. It you was know? surprising. And I, 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 <laughs> I, I want to see them do more movies like that, you know? Yeah. Did you like the Joker as well with Joaquin Phoenix? Uh, yeah, I did like that. But I uh, didn't particularly care for the Riddler in the Batman uh, uh-huh. uh, movie. Okay. You know, I, I, I thought I thought the movie was generally good, but the, the Riddler was a bit on the weak side for me. Yeah. I feel like they waited too long to bring the Riddler into the light, if you will. Yeah. And I think that's one of the first things you do right after the first act, you introduce the antagonist. And the, yeah. I mean, that's just your three part story arc. That's like yeah, basic storytelling, but they waited almost till the last uh, arc or the last story part to bring it in. But yeah. um, Hey, uh, let's fix it. Let's do it. I think some things are working. Some things may not yeah. be working, but uh, let's see what happens. The, and, and by yeah. the way, the fan base is there. If you turn out good movies, they're going to show up to the theater to see them. Well, absolutely. And I think Kevin Feige, you know, knows this about James. They're good friends, and apparently they still talk. Uh, they don't. They can't talk about business, of course. But you know, James Gunn has been intimately aware of Marvel's plans because of, of yeah. his work for so many yeah. years. And so now that he knows the special sauce and what Marvel may be doing, even though he's not supposed to let it interfere with his vision, James Gunn's vision, yeah. you know, it's got to play some role in that. And this week, you know, it was also announced that Marvel Studios are going to be focusing more on the quality and making maybe some Disney Plus series actual films, which will be great. You know, Armor Wars with John, Don Cheadle, we talked about on this show, becoming a film yeah. uh-huh. uh, because it's big in scope. So hopefully they'll learn from their kind of mistakes in, in phase four, if you will. I mean, I call them mistakes, but, you know, it, I think it's just another one of those things where they're trying to grow too much too fast. And I think there might be some fatigue maybe in the superhero genre as a result. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. And the other thing I'm going to mention here is that, you know, there's a, there, there's a lot of, you know, belt tightening going on in the streaming services, Mm -hmm. you know, because there was this arms race going on, you know, for a couple of years where they were just throwing so much money at uh, creating content. Well, now they're pulling back from that. And I think, you know, with Bob Iger now back at the helm of Disney, I think they have to seriously look at the movie theater as a component of their revenue. You can't abandon the movie theater. The movie theaters aren't going to go away. What you have to do is take these tentpole movies, these Marvel Universe and DC Universe type movies, and release them in the theaters for a certain period of time before you put them on your streaming service because people want to see these films on big screens. Absolutely. Proven time and time again. I mean, even before the pandemic, the biggest films out there, you know, were Avengers films. And then mm-hmm. into the pandemic, what were your biggest films out there? Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, you know, the, right. the list goes on and on. Yeah. Um, people want to see the movies and they're responsible to monetize them as much as they can um, and make their money back on their investment. It only helps the business in every arm of their yeah. business. So w- Wakanda forever. Exactly you know? right. 
Top Gun, Maverick, you exactly. know, I mean, the biggest movie uh, of the year, yeah. uh, you know, and and again, brought brought people back into the theaters, you know, uh, it really did. Exactly right. So uh, I'm sure there's a lot of movement and happening over there at Marvel and at DC. And uh, let's face it, you know, people can criticize Marvel and DC and superhero movies. And I think someone, you know, Hollywood does this a lot, and I don't know why they do it. It's hubris. I don't know if it's just invoked just crap on on superhero movies. But um, you know, Quentin Tarantino took his shot this this past yeah. week as well, and and of course, longtime collaborator and and star of his film Samuel L. Jackson clapped back and said, you know, we make great movies, and people go out to see them. Isn't that the point of of entertaining? Yeah. You know, yeah, it may not be a genre you like. You know, and that's fine, but there's an awful lot of people who want to see these movies on a big screen. I find it super hypocritical of Quentin Tarantino to, to yeah. criticize that because he wanted to do Star Trek. He mm-hmm. wanted to do Star Trek. And what is Star Trek? It's a big tentpole movie franchise. That's right. You know, and that's what these Marvel films are. That's all they are. They're like, you know, 007. It's iconic or Star Wars. You know, and- the perfect summer popcorn movies, you know, you you escape. That's what the movies is all. The, the movies are all about escapism. 100%. You go into a theater for a couple of hours and you're transported to another world, to some fantastical story. I mean, honestly, that's what I love about going to the movies every week. Same here. You, you go there to get lost and, and to just leave. Yeah real world for a while and and enjoy it so and uh who knows dave maybe you might enjoy avatar way of the water for three plus hours <laughs> this next week well i gotta tell you something <laughs> you know uh, it's gonna be interesting to see how well that movie opens because it is three hours and ten minutes it's huge uh and, and by the way i am gonna go see it and i'm gonna go see it on an imax screen and i'm looking forward to seeing it i know it's gonna be visually stunning yeah Will the story hold together for three hours and 10 minutes? I mean, that's what I want to see. It, it is interesting to see how filmmakers like, um, you know, uh, James Cameron uh, yeah. do special effects, you know, and uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, yeah. it, we do have uh, notable passings for this week. We have to say, um, and we're sad to say that Bob McGrath, original longtime resident of Sesame street dies at the age of 90. I have to say that, um, I, like many other children, grew up watching Sesame Street, loved Sesame Mm -hmm. Street, loved Bob and Mr. Hooper and um, so many others there, Maria and and Luis, Um, and we're going to miss Bob. Bob is a part of a pop culture. He spent 46 years on Sesame Street, Dave. That's a long time. It's amazing. He's he's left an incredible body of work behind, and you know what? Had a full life. 90. I mean, and, and, you know, what a likable character he was. He was sort of the, the sunshine to, uh, to, um, uh, the grouch, uh, yeah. Oscar, (laughs) Oscar, the grouch, you know, and, uh, and I have to say, uh, you know, great life. Absolutely. I wish everybody would be great neighbors like in Sesame street, you know? Yeah, Um, exactly. We had another passing Richard Miller of industrial light magic, who was a sculptor who created the iconic gold bikini for Carrie Fisher's princess Leia passes away at the age of 80. And not only was he responsible for that, but he was responsible for creature model shops for Star Trek, Back to the Future, Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, he is one of the integral pieces uh, for um, ILM, 
if you will. I mean, all these maquettes he's done over the years. Yeah, you know, this is not a household name. Richard Miller is not a household name, but he was one of these guys that, you know, he was a great craftsman, a great artist who brought to life uh, a lot of incredible elements in these uh, iconic movies. Loved it. I mean, you may not know, know his name, as Dave mentioned, but you know his work. He's been doing work on The Rocketeer, The Mask, Howard the Duck, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Dave. Yeah. Uh, also Planet of the Apes. I mean, there's so much that he's done over the years. So rest in peace. And, you know, once again, so much great work uh, that people go back and check out. Uh, speaking of great work as well, Helen Slayton Hughes recently passed. Uh, this came to us today as we record this show. She passed away at the age of 92. You might know her from her parts in Malcolm in the Middle and New Girl with Aubrey Plaza. So uh, once again, a long career and, uh, you know, she basically played so many characters over the years. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's a very recognizable uh, actress and somebody who you would have seen in a lot of things. Oh, yeah. Uh, she just uh, she had one of those faces. And, and by the way, she uh, she had a lot of success later in life. Yes. Isn't it funny how that works yeah. out? You know, and uh, you know she's been in a lot of stuff. MIPD, Blue, Drew Carey, Show Malcolm in the Middle, That's So Raven, Desperate Housewives. The list goes on and on. What a great character actress. And uh, check out Aubrey Plaza, her co-star in Parks and Rec. Uh, she put out a little Instagram tribute message, which was nice. She says, it was always Ethel Beavers, always rest in peace. Helen, you were so loved and admired. I want to be you when I grow up. And that's mm-hmm. great words from Aubrey Plaza. She's great. So go back and check out Parks and Rec. For sure. And check out the wonderful Helen Slayton Hughes. And Dave, now it's time for our awesome interview. Nancy Beeman's back on the show. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have a fantastic guest. Uh, I've been waiting months and months to get her on the show. We've got animator, author, and educator Nancy Beeman uh, with us. And Nancy, I want to welcome you to the Skull Rock Podcast. There you go, Nancy. That's our, our live studio audience going nuts. Thank you for that animated reception. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I want to welcome you to the Skull Rock podcast. And uh, and it has been a while since we talked. The last time you were on the show, it was with uh, Dean Yagel, uh, your former business partner in uh, Caged Beagle Productions. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation. And uh, I'm glad to have you on. And you had a... Uh, a seminal event in your life recently in the last month or so you retired. That's kind of an expression to say that I retired from one job. That's right. Yes. I'm still drawing cartoons and I've discovered I rather like doing still cartoons. It's a lot less change than animation. And during the past two years, I kept a cartoon diary not intentionally. It was never intended to be more than a couple of individual drawings, but it's it turned into a diary as the lockdowns and constant changing situation uh, frightened everybody. I did them to cheer my friends up. It started uh, with cheering up with just a little boy. And then my friends wanted to see it, my family, and me as well. It gave me something to do. And since a neighbor kept them, I thought, well, this actually looks like it could be a book. I was silly enough to self-publish it, but I did it because I, like most artistic projects, this thing wanted to, wanted to be. 
So now that I've got it out of my system, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing books, but at least I got this one done. Well, that's a fantastic, fantastic. And, and I have to say, I enjoy seeing your cartoons because I'm privileged to be on your email list when they go out. Uh, yes, that's and, how they and, originally went out. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, I, I get to enjoy them uh, uh, as you send them out. But, you know, before we go any further, I really mm -hmm. want to step back in time and and say, how did you get involved in animation? When did you first feel like animation or an art career was going to be your thing? Uh, and, you know, where did that all start? Well, I was expected to be an artist because my family background is quite artistic. My father was a musician, a classical musician, and an educator, a, a high school and college professor. And my father loved animation as well, but he wanted me to be a musician. He played in symphony orchestras. I grew up with an orchestra. I noticed that a lot of us have artistic backgrounds. Tina Price was a dancer, and other people came from different... Andreas, I think, had an artistic family. I'm not sure. My father was my main influence because he would take me to see the Disney pictures and my sister and my mother, of course, but mom never showed that much interest in animation. Dad absolutely adored it. He'd watch Warner Brothers cartoons with us, but I never expected to be an animator. In fact, when I was about, I guess, eight years old and we went to a hardware store, which had the Walter Foster art books for sale. And dad said, I will buy each of you a book. And I don't remember what my sister picked, but I picked something called Modern Cartooning, which looked like it was done around 1950. And dad, oh, he goes, he picks up the Preston Blair book and says, I'll tell you what, I'll buy you both. I'll buy you this one too. It was a dollar. And I said, oh, I don't want to do those kind of cartoons. <laughs> I really said that. He bought it anyway, and I, I couldn't, I could not understand it. So I never animated as a young child. I only got interested in it when I was a teenager. So again, I was expected to be a musician. I tried. I couldn't play an instrument. I couldn't, frankly, take lessons from dad. He expected me to be better than his students, and I wasn't. What What did your I, father play? Oboe and English horn. Ah, okay. Horangle, which is a gorgeous baritone oboe. And he played with a famous orchestra, the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, which had the first black conductor in the United States, Henry Lewis, mm. was married to the finest opera singer I've ever heard, Marilyn Horn. That's Louis Bear, sorry. Absolutely, these, this couple put that orchestra on the map. They had amazing soloists. I have seen Lena, I've seen uh, Leontine Price perform, and I've seen all, I mean, just name almost any famous soloist that performed with that orchestra. And we went to concerts and I grew up with it. So the first Disney film I can remember going to was Mary Poppins. Whole family went to see that. And it impressed me, but not to become an animator. I wanted to be the kids in that movie. I drew chalk paintings on the sidewalk and jumped on them. And we begged dad to buy us kites. And one thing I will tell you about the power of animated film, particularly of Disney films, is that we went and got these kites. I believe I had a Superman kite and my sister had a Batman kite. And when we went out to fly them, the entire neighborhood, every single family was out in this garden apartment, which, and they were all flying kites, every single family all together. Now that is what 
that movie, that what good that movie did. There must I have think been a fabulous I, I guess, film. I, I guess there must have been a huge spike in kite sales. There was, but that was a good, that's how yeah. good, what a good film can do. That's exactly what my family did growing up. Isn't that wonderful? We grew, did we you grew up kites? watching that, of course, you know, eight millimeter at the time at the public library, but Mary Poppins was one of our favorite family films. And we went and flew kites all the time in Seattle. I love them still. Yeah. They're marvelous. They are. You're late to relax. So I think I'm getting a little off my train of thought. I'm probably around the caboose by now, but I was drawing cartoons from a very young age. I drew dogs because I desperately wanted one. And my main influences were the comic strips. I didn't draw animated characters. I, drew, I tried to draw Snoopy. I adored Peanuts. And I got two letters from Charles Schultz. I wrote to him twice. Oh, that's nice. He answered me. He was a marvelous. I, I mean, he was just as wonderful in person as I would imagine he'd be. I met him a couple of times. And he was a, a big influence. And I love Chuck Jones's work. So I'd say those two are the biggest influences on my animation style. People tell me, especially around the way I draw eyes. And working for Chuck was another great, wonderful thing because he was another one of my heroes. And I still say he's one of the finest gentlemen I ever met. Mm-hmm. And what an amazing talent. So I adored Bugs Bunny. I, wa- I wanted to be like Bugs Bunny, but I didn't want to draw Bugs Bunny. That didn't happen until I was a teenager when I became interested in doing animation. And there were a series of really strange coincidences that got me into it. Nobody would really believe it if it hadn't really happened. And if you would like to hear them because they're kind of. Yeah, no, I I, absolutely. I want you to tell us stories. Our listeners are on the edge of their seats. (laughs) Well, it starts with uh, English classes and I believe that Tina also had this where film film classes also were in the English department. And I got interested first in silent comedy because of the film teacher showing Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. I was a big Keaton fan, still am. And I love Chaplin and Harold Lloyd and Marlon Hardy. But of course, nobody makes those films anymore. So I thought in the English department, we were told to make a film and someone in the class whom I didn't like very much, <laughs> announced that they were going to go to Atlantic City and film footsteps on the beach in the off season. Of course, there's no movement in that, but never mind. People always make movies of still stuff, you know? And I figured, well, they can't draw. So maybe I'll draw a film. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll try it. So I made some jointed figures out of paper and animated them. And it was called Oh for the Good Old Days. I didn't know what I was doing, but dad managed to find a copy of the Kodak animation book, which at the time was only animation book besides Preston Blair's that was available. And it apparently it's quite rare. And I learned something about how to time it, but not much. It's not a good picture. It's survived. It's not very good. It's standard eight. And this attracted some attention, especially when the other kid's projector broke down. <laughs> I was the only one left showing a movie for this, this assembly. And, and some, I, I, I was just going to ask uh, I, when, when you did that, it, it was essentially like cut paper animation, yeah. right? I jointed yeah. the figures with, I sewed them together. Okay. And used little brads for some of them. I think the high point of the film was a model T Ford exploding. It was really stupid, but my father <laughs> rent my father. Now this is where we get coincidental. My father went to his favorite, uh, place to shoot pool because he was you know he liked pool he liked pizza 
Sicilian pizzas. He'd go to this place in our town and he would talk about, well, this, this film my, my daughter just did. And one of his friends said, well, I work for a woman in New York who owns an optical printing house. Now, that was some pumpkins in 1974. Wow. A woman owning an optical printing house. Sure. It was called Exceptional Opticals. And he said, why don't you bring your daughter over to New York and I'll introduce her. So we went over and I see this big machine. Don't know what it is. Wow, it's impressive. Well, we don't do animation, but there's a guy up the street who does, gives lessons. Name is Ray Setti. He's in Sunflower Films. And we went up there. I was 16 years old. Mr. Setti said, well, I'll, I'll teach you if this is how much I charge. And Dad said, okay, I'll pay it. Summertime, you go in every Tuesday on the bus to New York. It was a direct route. And I was his youngest student and the only one, he said, who became a professional. Anyway, I took to it rather quickly. Um, I was animating first on my mother's old makeup mirror as a backlight. <laughs> and my, and uh, it was a good backlight. But my mom wanted her mirror back. So dad said, I don't like this Preston Blair design. I'm going to make you a real light box. <laughs> and the one he built had like 700 watts of fluorescence in it. It lit up the whole room, drove up right. the temperature. I could see through 20 sheets of paper. <laughs> and I was animating with magic marker. That's how completely thick I was. But the animation wasn't bad. Sadly, the tests are lost. Mm. I made these things and said, okay, I want to do this. Now, here's where the long arm coincidence gets pulled out of its socket. My film teacher, I'm a senior by now, he hates animation. He doesn't think it's real film, but he knew Zlatko Gurdjieff, the Zagreb animator who was in Canada. And the Zagreb studio was going to have a big show at the Museum of Modern Art. So thanks to my film teacher, Mr. Ed Roberts, Zlatko Gurdjieff came to our high school and did the show there first. Wow. And I can still, you can see the films. You can actually see the films online. And I loved them. And the, this is even stranger. It seems that the Walt Disney Company had its East Coast office for educational media in the town of Cranford, New Jersey. They liked our post office. Hmm. They came to the high school to see the Zagreb show and went to Mr. Roberts and said, do you have any seniors who are interested in animation? There's something going on at the Disney studio. Well, I was the only one that Mr. Roberts mentioned. So they said, please go to see Vince Donnelly. He's at the Disney office in an industrial park not far from that high school. So we drove over there and dad said, you go in. I'm not going with you. And Mr. Donnelly was delighted with what he saw and said, we're sending this to the Disney studio, Don Duckwall. I tell dad, we're sending it to there. And he bursts out laughing and said, where else can the man work with a name like that? I know, really. <laughs> Two weeks later. I get a message from Mr. Duckwell. We are sending your portfolio to Jack Hanna at the California Institute of the Arts. We think yeah. we can get you a scholarship. I'd never heard of the place. Right. So that is the highly improbable story of how I got interested in animation and how I got to Cal Arts. Now, I'd never had any art lessons except for sculpting. Not exactly, hey, but not good either. I knew I couldn't draw. And I'd never get into CalArts today with the portfolio I had in 1975, but I got into that first class. There were two other girls there and I saw what the guys were doing and I said, okay, I'm a token. I've got to work really hard to get good. Mm. I have to say the teachers were tough, but fair. Yeah. They did not treat me any differently than the boys, which means they were just as rough. 
especially Bill Moore, the design teacher. Oh, my gosh. We, we've talked about Bill Moore on this show numerous times. But he's, Elmer, he's Plummer, Elmer Plummer was the one that hit me the hardest. He was a really? life drawing teacher. Yeah. He came up to me once and said, you don't draw as well as the boys do. Wow. And I was furious because I knew he was right. I'm so shocked. I, I liked, I liked, El, I, I liked Elmer Plummer a lot. I thought he was a really terrific guy. In fact, I actually have a couple of his watercolors here at the house. He was a wonderful, wonderful story man to his boards for Dumbo's uh, roustabout sequence. Are great. And he told us he really worked as a roustabout. But I can tell you, he did that on purpose. The same reason Bill Moore swore at me is to get you mad. And as I was furious, but not at him, I knew he was right. Yeah. So I drew 10 pages on my sketchbook every day. I worked like a dog on that to get better because yeah. I knew I knew he was right. Yeah. But yeah, you can't talk that way to a student anymore, but they did then. Yeah. Yeah. So it was and, and they and they were all old school, too. So no, you didn't. A, they did. They did they, not have to tell you. They didn't have to tell you you were special. Right. Everybody was going to pass. And, you know, CalArts had a 33 percent dropout rate per year. Yeah. That's how that's how tough it was. Yeah. And both of the other female students were gone by the end of year two. One of them had a young daughter and couldn't take the workload. The other one was only going for two years. Yeah. Was so I was the only one left in the first class by year by year two. It was rough. Yeah. It was rough. And 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 they they were obviously, you know, wanting to train the next generation of animators there in that program. Because, That's all it was intended to do. Yeah, it was never yeah. supposed to go more than four or five years, you know. Right. We were going to restaff the studio and shut it down, but it turned out to be such a success. The Disney, the Disney family, specifically Roy and Edna Disney, yeah. paid my tuition and that of many other students. Yeah. And after the first couple of, I guess, I don't know, maybe by the early 80s, they the school took it over and decided we'll make this a continuing program without having the Disney family be the exclusive sponsors. Right. And it was it was rough. But I met uh, I got encouraged by uh, particularly by Ollie Johnston, who mm -hmm. said, stick with it. We need more women in this business. Uh, Our uh, very uh, first screening. Uh, who else was in your class when you were there? Well, there's that famous picture of us all, but there's an, actually a much rarer one showing us all lined up like along the blackboard. But the class members included John Musker, John Lasseter, Joe Lancicero, yeah. Bruce Morris, Daryl Van Sitters, yeah. Harry Sabin, uh, oh, Brett Thompson. I'm just looking at that picture. Brad Bird. Yeah. Um Jerry Reese. Jerry. Oh God, I got to forget Jerry. Jerry's work just blew me away. I'm sorry. I'm I'm more visual than all. Yeah, yeah. There was also uh, a fellow named Tim Barker who didn't. Uh, he's not in that picture. And a, a young man named Paul Nowak who nobody's seen. He, he's the only one who didn't go into animation because I've never heard of him since. But he's in profile in that shot. And Leslie Margolin, and Mike wow. Sedino. And Mike yeah. Sedino was only 16 at the time, and he and I were the two youngest people class wow. and the only one the only ones who had not been in communication with cal arts for years i hadn't heard of the place and mike was still in high school wow so uh, it was it was an interesting group of people yeah and 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 an interesting sort of mix of uh, of instructors i mean aside from bill moore and eric uh and elma Plummer uh and jack hannah heading the program bob yeah. mccray was the animation. no i didn't but bob mccray was not there at the time was he not there at the time no. uh, we had t he and ken o'connor ken o'connor that's it and, 
and then uh, Bob McCray came in a few years later. After because, I after I graduated. Yeah, he was because, there, but he wasn't. He was. I never had a class with Bob McCray. Yeah, because he he was there when I was up there, and I I came into Cal Arts a few years after you. Well, I have to say he was there, but I did not have classes with him, and I'm not okay. sure he. I think he was teaching some of the underclass and by yeah. that time. Right. He was the seniors and the juniors were sharing a room. So Tim Burton was in the uh, same room with us, the infamous A113, which turns up in so many films made particularly by Brad Bird. Yes. And that's our classroom number. I've had to explain that to so many people. And Tim would pull these funny pranks. He was a character. Everybody liked him. So it was, there were so few people in the third year. I think they moved them in with the seniors because they're we, between the two class years, we filled up one classroom. Wow. So it was uh, great training and I knew it, but I can tell you that sometimes I did have to leave Fillmore's class to run to the ladies room and I get, you know, feel sick or whatever, but I'd come back and he, I used, he, used he, to, he, he was tough and he was cruel. Not necessarily. He, I knew what he was doing back then. And he was basically sort of telling us, you guys think you don't need this class. And you do. And we all agree it's the most important one. The T he class though, frustrated a lot of people too, because T would, he won't, uh, he won't teach us. No, no, he doesn't tell us what to do. That's quite a difference. You have to think in his class and that and your head hurts. So after I graduated, I became very good friends with Teehee and Ken O'Connor and stayed friendly with them for the rest of their lives. They were wonderful people. Yes, they were. Uh, did you, uh, uh, when you graduated from Cal Arts, did you, what did you do? Did you stay in Los Angeles or go back to the East Coast? Here's a funny thing. I was making my senior film and it was in full color, last scene, and I had to pay for that myself. I had a shock ending with a 48 field pullback. No one in their right mind wow. ever does something like that, but I did. Went from a four field center to a 48 field center. And that may sound idiotic to your viewers, but it means extreme close up to extreme long shot. And um, I had to fo- get this thing processed and a friend dared me. Okay. It's right next door to the Richard Williams studio. I dare you to go in there and, and show and talk to them. Well, I was fighting words. So I said, okay, I'll go in there. And I went in and they ran my third year test, which was about some cats and no, no present company, not except I wasn't in, I didn't have any cats as pets. I just wanted to animate them. Yeah. And Richard Williams said, that's rather nice. And Mr. Mr. Babbitt over there likes your animation, Mr. Babbitt, that guy in the brace in the corner. Hello, Mr. Babbitt. Would you like to come to Cal arts to lecture at our school? And he said, well, I was supposed to be head of your program, and I don't think you want to invite me there. I didn't know about that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I said, well, can, can I come back and interview you? Oh, sure. When you come back from Christmas vacation, sure, come back again. Meanwhile, Jim Logan, one of Dick's assistants, goes, while you're in New York, go see my old friend Jack Xander. Xander go, and Associates, right? Xander's Animation Parlor. Now, I have to tell you about that. Okay. Jack had changed his name from Pelican Films to Xander's Animation Parlor, specifically because he was annoying the madman he shared a building in. He was at 285 Madison Avenue, 
it was the classic Mad Men era. Even though it was the 70s, they still dressed that way. The gray suits. It's just yeah. like in the show. And they couldn't stand what Jack did because he made it look. A parlor is an old term for a uh, house of ill repute. Yeah. It's the nicer word. And Jack made it look like that. He had red flocked velvet wallpaper. He had a bimbo balancing a light bulb on her feet for a lamp. <laughs> and I thought it looked nice. <laughs> so I go in there. And Jack didn't believe this animation was done by a student. I actually came back a second time. The first time they didn't want to see me because they figured student animation at the time was not what they wanted. I came back a week later because I'm stupid. I mean, I, I took rejection a little better, I guess. And they said, oh, we might as well look at it. And Jack said, okay, sit down, draw me something. Draw a sheep. He didn't believe I'd done it. And so I drew a sheep. He goes, get in my office. I've seen enough. Turn off the projector. And he sits down and he goes, all right, uh, what the hell do you want to go back to school for? I never went to school. Sit down. We'll pay you. Start now. I said, Mr. Zander, if I don't get my degree, my mother will be standing on the front porch with a gun. She's never (laughs) shot a gun in her life, but metaphorically speaking. And that was actually one of the best favors she could have done me because dropping out of school would have been very unwise. It's been very important to have that degree only because I became a teacher later on. Right. And if you don't have the bachelor's degree, you can't go on and do the master's. And it's, I've seen very wonderful artists who never had that undergraduate degree and could not get permanent positions as a result. So staying in school was, was a good idea. Yeah. But Mr. Zander said, all right, I want to hire you. I go back to LA and uh, Dick Williams he goes, oh, we uh, wanted to uh, hire you, you know. I didn't know he was so uh, under key about it. I thought he just wanted me to come back and visit. And, and at that time, <laughs> was was he working on Raggedy Ann and Andy? No. Or had he, he already finished, finished that? that? This was 1978 okay. when okay. I met him. I interviewed Art Babbitt in January of 1979, mm-hmm. and we made an arrangement that I would graduate early and start working for Jack Zander in April of 1979. So I finished my senior film, finished all my course requirements and graduated first in my class with a four-year degree. There were people who got out a little earlier, I different, but I was the first to do the full four years and get the degree. Right. I wasn't at my own graduation. And years later, when I got my master's degree, my mother was saying, I'm going to see her graduate from something. <laughs> and they, they attended that. So I start work for Jack Zander and I meet the first day, Dean Yagel, because at the time, you could smoke in offices, and I can't be in a room with a smoker. Never could. And uh, Dean was the only person in that studio who didn't smoke besides Jack, and I couldn't very well work in Jack's office. Yeah. So Dean and I became good friends because I took out a picture of Buster Keaton and put it on my desk, and Dean said, we're going to be friends. <laughs> and we've been friends ever since. And I've learned an awful lot from him. It was a terrific studio. There were some great people. there, And they did mostly commercials, right? We were he he hired me because he was doing a special called the Gnomes, based on Reen Portfleet's book, okay. and he had Aurelius Battaglia on it and a bunch of his other friends. I mean, I worked with Preston Blair. Blair was working for Xander at the time. I worked with Emery Hawkins. You know, which is really amazing, Nancy, because you know there's so many stories. Like you said earlier, when you went into Dick Williams's studio in Hollywood, uh, that uh, Art Babbitt was there. You know, and, was, and, and, was a marvelous teacher. I, I haven't told you about that interview, but it's in one of my books. 
fantastic. It's an animated performance. Did, did, did you superb. record? Did you record that interview? It has been recorded. Yeah, and right. portions of it will appear on Greg Ford's five disc DVD set of commercials because I Babbitt mentioned a snowdrift commercial, ah. which at the time I had not seen. No one had. There's no internet, and Babbitt designed it and he describes it, and I seen it since and yeah he did a fabulous job analyzing characters of somebody in this little tiny soap opera they did called john and marcia so the interview actually is a good deal longer and it has survived it's i dubbed it onto a new tape in 2000 because i recorded an awful lot of interviews all of the tapes are gone except for that one wow and one other this one is a knockout because it was only just restored in 2016 it's called Women in Animation. Mm. I met Selby Kelly at Jack Zander's studio, Mrs. Walt Kelly. Now, I didn't know she was there, but she didn't know who I was. And she was assisting on the gnomes. And she asked to meet this girl animator that he's got. I figured, okay, the assistant wants to complain about something. Usually they did. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I had some male assistants who made trouble. So I was expecting trouble. And here comes Mrs. Walt Kelly, who said uh, hello and was very friendly. And then she said, there's a film that I made with Kelly. Would you like to see it? Of course. I, have a, I had a 16 millimeter projector in my house, apartment rather. And I'd seen the 12 minute version of We Had Met the Enemy that was run in my high school. And I figured that's got to be it. She came over to dinner. And she brought a 30-minute reel. Now, you could always tell how long a film was in those days by the size of the reel. Sure. This didn't look like the same movie. So I look at it, and I always, you know, those of us old-timers who ran projectors, you have to check the first 100 feet to make sure the splices aren't bad. So I had my rewinds, and I'm looking at it. Oh, there's an awful lot of splices. And she goes, oh, yeah, this is the work picture. There aren't any other copies. Oh, God, I went through the entire thing. Wow. I realized I had something different. It didn't look like the same movie. And when I projected it, I realized this is this is the way he wanted to make it. It's a it's a horror film. It's a horrifying film. <sighs> it's an environmental film that is sadly predicted a lot of what's happening today. And Kelly was doing it himself and he did the entire soundtrack in one take because the sound man in the booth didn't know how to direct him. And so it's the only recorded pitch by a Disney golden age story man. And I eventually helped uh, Greg Ford and uh, get it transferred to tape so that it wouldn't get lost forever. Yeah. But it was, uh, it's a horrifying film and it is online now. If you want me, I'll send you a link. Yeah. I'd love to see it. If and, and, and we could put the, we could put that into the show notes as well, Al John. Anyway, Selby and I remained friends for many, many years. But she said, you're coming with me to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I'm doing a lecture on Snow White. I want you to talk. I said, I wasn't even thought of when Snow White was made and my parents were children. What could I possibly say? She said, you know the animators. I said, well, didn't you? No. She said, if a woman walked into the animation building, she was fired. Wow. Inker, I should say. An inker walks into the animation building. She is fired. Wow. I said, well, 
did you meet Kelly at Disney? Oh, heavens no. He was in the animation building. Didn't you go to the cafeteria on my salary? I got $15 a week. I said, well, it was a depression. Yes, I quit a job that paid 20 in a drugstore to, to work at Disney. And she was the head of paint mixing on Snow White. Wow. She mixed, physically mixed the paint. She's actually in the program for Radio City. There's a photograph of her. Yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, just for our listeners to know, uh, during that period at the Disney Studios, uh, they actually had a, their own paint lab, and they would mix the, uh, the pigments and the binders together uh, to create their own paints. They had, they had their own formula. Uh, for the various colors uh, that they followed, you know, each time they were making batches of paint. But so Selby was people, in charge of that. She was in charge. Yeah, of a lot of people don't realize it, but that's uh, the the paint lab. And, and and by the way, when I started working at the studio in, in early 1984, the paint lab was still there. They were still making their own paints because what? it was still the 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 cell process, the hand painted cells. Well, actually, they shifted to cartoon color. Uh, in the early 80s, the hand-mixed paint was was out of style even in, when I was a trainee there. They, they actually they actually tran, trans uh, they they transitioned to the cell vinyl paint. Cell vinyl, yes. Yeah, cell vinyl paints uh, after the Black Cauldron. Yes. Yeah. So yes, you were there at the end of that era. Yeah. Selby was in charge of that department. Anyway, I went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art with her, and that recording has survived. But then we did another lecture up at the Museum of Cartoon Art that same year. And Selby is in charge of that one. In the Museum of Cartoon Art, she's being interviewed by a man who doesn't let her say much. And other than her beautiful voice, you don't get much information. In the Museum of Cartoon Art, we were so popular, we had to do two sessions. I was up there with Helen Komar, who was a Terry Tunes vet and famous studios vet. So I think famous more than Terry, but she also worked for Ralph Back. She's worked for an awful lot of East Coast studios and Selby, of course, working on the West and East Coast and also in Mexico. And those two women really will knock your socks off. Selby is very much in charge. And Helen comes out and says there were absolutely no opportunities for promotion. Selby told me the same thing. Nothing. Hmm. So that's why they wanted to meet me, because I got what they couldn't have. Selby wanted to be an animator, and she was told, nah, get out of this building. You go over across the street to Ink and Paint. That's her in 1936. Yeah, that was. That never was the, got over that. Yeah, that was the common uh, the common uh, phrase to women as, as artists. They were yes. shuttled over to the Ink and Paint building. Well, there were exceptions, and I met one of them. That was Retta Scott. Yeah, Retta Scott and Mary Blair. But Frank a, Thomas got Retta Scott promoted. Yeah. And Ken O'Connor said she was the finest draftsman in the studio, mm. male or female. She, no, she was the best draftsman. Ken admired her very much. Also admired Mary Blair. Yeah. So it wasn't exactly paradise for women, as some people might think. Right. I think Warner's was a little more fair. I know that Chuck Jones hired for talent. And yeah. Ralph Bakshi hired for talent. And sure. I worked for Bakshi and I, I liked him and I still do. And I, Do you still I, keep in touch with him? Very rarely. He's on yeah. Facebook, but I look at his paintings, which I enjoy. And he's an expert on cartoon history. So when I was yeah. doing some work on T.S. Sullivan about 40 years ago, Ralph actually wrote me and said, here's where you can find some color work. I wouldn't have known where to look. Yeah. 
So he knows all this stuff, and that's very impressive. And you meet all kinds of friends and uh, at these studios. But to tell you the truth, I didn't care for California much. And Xander offered me an animator's job, and that was not something I was expecting straight out of school. Sure. And, and how long did you stay with them? About three years, although I did a little work for them. Commercials, of course, started to peter out in New York around that time. Yeah. Dean went freelance in 82. And he started doing a lot of other stuff. He did a lot of product design, not so much animation. I started working for Rick Reinert Productions in 1983 at the, uh, and also for Disney Character Merchandising, which was in New York City. Yeah. They were wonderful. And I got both, I think both connections through Dan Haskett. Mm -hmm. And Dan had been animating for Reinert. You can see his uh, Orange Bird film online very easily. And Rick uh, was willing to ship work to both of us in New York. So I think we are the first of the long distance animators, at yeah. least in the U.S. Sure. And it was great. It was a union job. I didn't have to put up with the politics. They didn't have to see me. So they loved my work. Yeah. And I had a lot of fun. And I always like animating the Disney characters. Now, I've also spent a great deal of time animating Warner Brothers characters. I worked first for Greg Ford around 1986 on uh, Quackbusters and some of the Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny specials. But it's funny, you were talking about how the Roger Rabbit camera was wiggling. Andreas was mentioning how they had trouble to match the character to the live action. Well, I can tell you that in a commercial, you'd lock the camera onto a set of rails, a little railroad track, and the camera's locked. It doesn't judder. Right. But that might not have been possible in a feature. It's very different setup. Yeah, and I, I, I just I, I just want our listeners to to know that uh, in the interview we did with Andreas Deja a few weeks ago, um, uh, he talked a little bit about the fact that in Roger Rabbit, they didn't lock the camera off. So you'd have shots that would have this slight little drift to the camera and you had to compensate to lock your animation in on that. So uh, it, it, it sort of added more difficulty to doing the animation live action combination. Uh, and uh, so that, that's what you were referencing. Well, even if your camera is, stat is absolutely rock solid, you've got a problem if it's moving. Now, we animated right. a picture in, I'm jumping ahead a bit now. In 1992, I was working again for Greg Ford on a picture called The Blooper Bunny. And it was done in New York. It's Bugs Bunny's 51st and a half birthday. And the opening shot was very early computer animated background. Bill Croyer did it. And it's walking around backstage as the characters are rehearsing. And it opens with a shot of Bugs at the piano. He's playing the little dance tune with one finger. And you're trucking in on him. Now, that computer animated background has parallax it's distorting and deforming the shapes as they're going in mm. now the thing you'd never do when you have a moving camera and a character like that you never have them standing still the feet will skate so i had bugs tapping his foot yeah then i had to do trigonometry i had <laughs> to register bugs's facial distortion to different parts of the background as they are stretching so is bugs's face so you don't notice any discrepancy between the character's movement in other words distortion of the camera pan is had to be faked in my drawings sure and 
I was able to do that. And then the camera stops at one point and I just animated bugs conventionally. But since they were painting these things with cell paint, the same way they did Great Mouse Detective, they had to print out the computer line drawings and paint them. There were problems with the cells. So they re-photographed the entire scene with a camera to make it look like out-of-focus footage. I think that was a technique that Brad Bird used first in Family Dog. Yeah. And it saved the shot because we had a lot of problems with the cell paint and stuff boiling. So it looks really funny. Then they took the film, dropped it on the floor, stepped on it, scratched it. No after effects in 1992. So it looks like outtakes and bad film cut together. If you haven't seen the blooper bunny, it's a lot of fun. It's the same scene, like take after take getting blown. It's the first film, first cartoon to do that. And and was that, uh, uh, is that available on YouTube? It certainly is. Yeah. And it's called that blooper bunny. And the entire opening sequence you'll see has that gorgeous animated computer background, but parts of it where it stops, it looks like the camera's still moving because it was photographed twice. So I'm animating bugs and Daffy and the film almost got shut down over one of my scenes. Not that it's anything I did. It's the line of dialogue. Daffy says Mm. he's walking around backstage going, who writes a slop? Happy birthday, old pal, old buddy. The next thing you know, they'll give me three snot-nosed nephews. I wouldn't put it past them. Warner Brothers doesn't have an original bone in its cut. <laughs> that line, that line. Oh, boy. Never mind that Daffy's an idiot. Warner's was furious. They didn't want to release the film. Oh, be, uh, so they really took offense by it, huh? Um, Very much so. Wow. Which is stupid because Daffy's stupid. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I won't go into the whole history of the Blue Bunny, but it was apparently Linda Semensky who got it put into the Cartoon Network portfolio, she insisted. It was kind of a legendary picture. And it's now, I'm told, one of the most popular Warner Brothers cartoons. And when they did the new releases, that was on there. I was very surprised. Now, how, how long were you animating in New York before you started go- globetrotting? Well, what happened was... I was working for Rick Reinert from 1992 to about 1996. Uh, We did the Winnie the Pooh in a Day for Eeyore, which was the first project I worked on for him. Mm -hmm. And of course, Disney character merchandising was also very nice. Whenever I needed work, I just said, hey, got anything? Yeah, come on in. They were great. Yeah. And Rick did, we did films for Epcot, one of which somebody found online and I'm pretty impressed how it still looks reasonably good. Some of the others I'd love to see again, and I don't even know where to find them. But they were a lot of fun. I loved animating Donald Duck. They all featured Donald Duck. And I got to do the scene everybody has been waiting for for decades with Donald. It's where he's looking at a dead turkey on a platter. It's live-action turkey. And there's a guy dressed as Sir Francis Bacon, the scientist, and Donald's in little Elizabethan costume. And this was the last film Ducky Nash ever did a track for. Mm-hmm. And he makes a sort of a hissing sound. <laughs> and I had Donald doing that swinging arm thing, the Harpo Marx move, sitting down in a chair. And the man says, it's a goose, not a duck, Donald. And then you cut to a close-up of Donald grabbing his hat and going, cannibal. Cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> I have been waiting for years for Donald to get angry about someone eating turkey. Of course, the reason why uh, Donald Duck and Woody Woodpecker eat 
turkey legs is because they're easy to draw. Yeah. Nobody ever seemed to think, wait a minute, these are birds. They're eating like another bird. <laughs> it's easy to draw. That's the reason why they did it. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, so those so, films are gone. And I, I worked for Reinhardt on a couple of other specials. One that was by Art Buckwald called The Bolo Caper, uh-huh. which again just turned up online. And then the work dried up. Everything died. In New York. And in New York. And yeah. I, I wasn't getting any work in California either. Right. I worked for Bill Melendez about that time on you, Snoopy the Musical. And, I was going to say Snoopy the Musical. And It's the Girl in the Red Truck yeah. in 87. And we did a film called It's the Girl in the Red Truck. It, well, it was released in 88. Yes, because they CBS was stupid. Uh, we made this live action animated combo a year ahead of Roger Rabbit. Yeah. And when they held us up for so long, everyone was saying, well, you're imitating Roger Rabbit. And I remember Charles Schultz was very good about defending that film, saying we made it we made it earlier. Yeah. But, you know, what are you going to do? It's it's a nice little film in its own right. Right. But I then saw in a newsletter because there's no Internet. It was a paper newsletter put out by animation. Somebody Berlin, Don Martin, neat animator. Oh, that sounds like fun. Actually, first I went over to, yeah, I went over first to. Uh, you went to London, didn't you? No, I went first to Denmark. Oh, Denmark. Okay. Eric Goldberg recommended me to the Swan Film Studio, and that's where I met Borga Ring. And I'll say one thing about Borga. Not only was he a great animator, but he was one of the, he said one of the most important things anyone ever said to me in animation. I said, this scene isn't interesting. He said, you must make it interesting. There you go. And I went I, I don't have exact dates for everything, but I again, I see this ad for animating Don Martin commercial. And I sent over a reel to Gerhard Han film production in Berlin. And I didn't think anyone was going to answer that. You know, this is, again, ancient history. We're sending over 16 millimeter reels and portfolios. And in about the same amount of time it would have taken it to get there by UPS, I get a phone call. Hello, hello, hello. Can you get on the next plane? How many years can you stay? <laughs> I, I said, who is this? This is Gerhard Hahn in Berlin. I said, well, um, let's see if we can do a month together and see if we like each other. So we did a month. I worked on this commercial with Don Martin characters and animated about half of it. And we, I liked Berlin and liked Gerhard and stayed there for about two years, then went to work for Steven Spielberg in London. So I have to tell you something about why I'm doing this. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm kind of a big city girl. I like public transit. I do not like cars. Okay. So if you want to know why I went anywhere, take a look at the public transit system in any of the cities I was in. They were great. All of them had good public transit. Yeah. <laughs> you get anywhere you want. Hey, listen, you know, we're bumping up against time, Nancy. So oh. what I want to do is I, I want to say goodbye to you, but I want you back next week. Sure. Uh, uh, because I want to ask you about your feet are too big for dancing because oh, I wanna, yeah. it's, it's I, just I, called, it's just called your feet's too big or your, your feet's too big. But yeah. I, I, I want to talk about that. So I want to say goodbye right now. And thank you for being on the Skull Rock podcast. And we're going to have you back next week to finish our conversation. Okay. Sure. And I'll try not to grab it on about the same things. Thank you so much. I love it. Nancy on the show. And she is just, she is just a delight. 
She really is. I mean, she she's really terrific. Uh, I love the conversation with her. She, I mean, she's such a talented animator. It's amazing. And a cartoonist and an author and a uh, retired teacher now, uh, professor of animation at Sheridan College. I mean, she she's really a wonderful person. And I can't tell you enough, Al John, yeah. that her book, How I Finally Got to Live a Cat's Life, A Cartoon Diary 2020 to 2021 by Nancy Beeman. You got to get a copy of this. She she's really done a terrific job. This was this was really something that that was a byproduct of the pandemic. And she's got a, a full book of cartoons uh, revolving around her cats. And uh, it's available. We're going to put a link into the show notes. But if you're a cat person, if you like cartoons, if you like uh, just uh, great still, uh, you know, comics, uh, this is a book that you're going to really enjoy. I've been laughing. I, I've been picking this book up periodically since it arrived. She was kind enough to send me a signed copy. And uh, it, it's really a wonderful book. So so check it out uh, uh, at nancybeeman.com. And I think we're going to put all those links in uh, to our show notes. Absolutely. Go ahead and check it out. And, you know, I love cats. And I think, you know, on my final final few days, I'd like to live a cat's life. That would be amazing. <laughs> I really would. That's all I got to say about that. And uh, once again, all that stuff will be in the show notes. Once again, thanks to our sponsor, Sure, Old Mill Press as well. We'll have links to our show notes as well. It is the holiday season, so I'll just encourage everybody to go out there and buy some awesome books from Old Mill Press because they believe in quality books, and you need to have some there and treat yourself right because they're perfect gifts, gifts not only for you, but also for that special someone that really loves quality books. So check that stuff out. Don't forget, you can also like, share, and subscribe to this podcast please do leave us those five-star reviews if you believe we deserve it and we'd love to read your feedback just send us that email dave or aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com dave you got the final word well aljohn i just want to remind our listeners that on saturday uh december 17th i'm going to be at the bob baker marionette holiday bazaar at the forest lawn museum on uh right off of glendale avenue in glendale california and then on Sunday, I'm going to be at Walt's Barn right next to Travel Town in Griffith Park, Los Angeles. Uh, both events, uh, there'll be books available. I'll be signing books and uh, just generally having a good time. If you're in the area, stop by, do a little Christmas shopping, or just stop by and say hello. Uh, I'd love to see you and uh, love to hear what you think of our show, The Skull Rock Podcast. And with that, Please go out, have a safe week. I know the weather is uh, miserable uh, in a lot of parts of the country. Uh, there's snow up in the Northeast, there's rain, there's snow in the Northwest, there's lots of uh, weather out there. So just take your time, be kind to one another, and we'll see you back here next week, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. 
Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.